Today's sermon's entitled, Your Life is Bread. We've been on this exciting sermon series for the last couple of weeks, and if you've missed them, you certainly can go online and get the first two parts of this series. But this is part number three, and we're going to talk about brokenness. And I know every one of us has gone through this in our lives. We've had times in which we felt incredibly broken. And I guess the question that I want to answer today is, or at least try to anyway, is how does God see us in our brokenness? But let me start off first and foremost and talk a little bit about the challenge that we all have in life. The truth is, is that we tend to not let go of our possessions very easily, even when they're aged, even when they're broken, even when they have no value whatsoever, really. We hang on to them and we tend to store them. We put them in our sheds, we put them in closets, we put them within our lives, we hang on to them, but for what reason? We'll never use them again, and most stuff we don't even look at ever again. When we explore our garages, our basements, the hidden corners, we have a whole bunch of forgotten supposed treasures. We often encountered heaps of old broken toys and stained chairs, and, and we look at all these different things that are rusted, they're scratched, they're outdated, they don't really have any specific value, but yet we hang on to them anyway. And despite their deteriorated condition, the fact that they really don't seem to have any value, we hoard them, we keep them. Why? partially because we're afraid we might go without something, but also because they have memories ultimately attached to them. We often also consider the original cost, and we say, I paid a lot of money for those things. They were really valuable when I bought them, therefore I don't necessarily want to get rid of them. It takes courage, I think, to confront the clutterness within our lives. Now, you may not be like this fellow here who's hoarding that you can see in the picture, but ultimately we all have our our stashes of stuff that we hang on to. And even when we muster enough strength to go through this stuff and say, you know what, I'm going to get rid of some of it, it's difficult for us because we don't always see it as junk. We see it as treasures and we want to hang on to them. And I got thinking, how many times have we tried to deal with this issue within our lives? How many times have we organized our own yard sale, attempting to present, you know, our perceived treasures to the worlds and hope that they won't see them as junk, but see them as valuable and give us a few pennies for them? How many times have we done that? And the more of the stuff that we have, the more that we look at it and realize how invaluable it is, how much it is really junk, the more likely we'll get rid of it. But the problem is, is that we don't look at our stuff very easily that way. And I got thinking, is that the way that God ultimately looks at us? Have you ever thought about that? How does God see us in our brokenness? You know, our stuff we see that is broken, we put value to it. Does God put value to us? How does he deal with us when we're hurt? How does he deal with us when we're in pain? How does he deal with us when our whole lives seem like they're falling apart? How does he deal with us within our sin? How does he deal with us in general? What way does he look upon us when he looks from the heavens down to us? What does he ultimately see? And I got thinking one thing he definitely sees would be the fact that we do an awful lot of sinning. I know I certainly do. In the previous discussion, we found out that God is our portion, but we don't always treat God the way that we should. I struggle every day, I'll be very honest, to live a good and holy life. And I sin against God probably every single day. And I'm constantly asking him to forgive me. And I often wonder, what does he think about us when we sin consistently over and over again? What does he think about us when we we have moments that we're nominal Christians? In other words, moments in which we just think about this world. We think about the things of this world. We get caught up in it. We spend a whole day, let's say, without thinking about the Lord at all because we're too busy thinking about ourselves. 
What does he think about those individuals who have a whole bunch of spiritual gifts? And we all do if we're born again. We're given spiritual gifts. We have incredible potential, but we remain lukewarm. What about the people that sit in the pews that never do anything inside of the church? They never get involved. They let other people do all the work and they sit there and they're like takers. They just, they take in, which is really important for all of us to do, by the way. But at the same time, we should be given back. The love that we get from others should be expressed to one another. What happens when we don't express any love towards other people? What happens when we decide to sit on our spiritual gifts? You know what? What happens when we decide that we're not going to basically explore the calling that God has given us? What does he think about that when we say no to him? Moreover, what must God think when we succumb to the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, or the pride of life in 1 John 2.16? Are not these those who are broken at, through sin, does God not look at them and say, you know what? You're pretty lazy fair. You don't really feel like you want to do much of anything in my kingdom. Isn't he a little bit disgusted or outright look at us and say, you are vile people. You know, I've got thinking about Moses and he said this before he went to heaven. He said to the people of Israel, he said, you are like stiff necked people. In other words, you get your mind focused on yourself and you never get your mind focused on God and you just stay on one path. And that's the path that you want to go on instead of God's path. Are you a little bit like that? Do you struggle here? I know I do from time to time. What does God think of us when we are doing that? And let's go on to part number two. What does God think about us in our brokenness from living in this fallen world? How does he view us when we're going through trials and tribulations and difficulties that are extremely, you know, just heartbreaking, painful, just wretching to go through? We've all heard the resounding echoes of the creation decaying constantly, Romans 8, 19 to 21. We've seen people marked with sickness, death, financial crises, marital dissolution, diseases, conflicts run rampant throughout all this world. We've seen people who've experienced this, and we ourselves have as well. If you've never had a difficulty in your life, well, blessed be the name of the Lord. Thank him, because that's abnormal. Most people have gone through many different trials and tribulations and are going through them right now, and it's not easy. In the face of such atrocities, who amongst us can say we're untouched, we're unaffected by living in this fallen world? Who can say that you've got a silver spoon in your hand and you've never had any difficulties in your life at all? Very few people. With pain and brokenness ravaging our souls, how does God respond to us when we cry out, Abba, Father, please help me? What is his response? What is he thinking? How is he feeling? What kind of help does he offer us? This is a couple of things that we're going to look at when it comes to our brokenness. We're going to ask the question, when it comes to, to, to our lives, how does God respond to us? And I want to go to part number one, which is sin. When we sin and fall short of God's glory, what does he think? Now, sin is just missing the mark of holiness. In other words, we do things on our own that is contrary to what God wants us to do in our lives. That is sin. What does he think about us when we sin, when we become broken because of our sin? Has he got mercy? Has he got grace? Is he angry at us? Is he bitter at us? What does he respond to us when we are far short of his glory? And I got thinking about God. God is pure light, it says in the scriptures. There's no darkness in him whatsoever, First John 1, 5. 
that means that God cannot commune with us. God cannot uh, allow us to talk to him, spend time with him, be part of his family even, if we have sin within our lives. And I'm going to explain what that means here in a moment, how God atones for that, or how he has atoned for that through his son Jesus. But the truth is, is that the God doesn't look at us and say, you know what, since you've sinned, I can't talk to you anymore. If he did that, oh my goodness, there wouldn't be a day in my life that, that the Lord would ever talk to me because I sin every single day. The truth is, is that he has decided throughout all of history to give us a way to be atoned, a way ultimately to say, I am sorry, a way to say, Lord, please forgive me of my sins. Please don't hold them against me. God has always provided that out of grace and mercy. So God's response is grace and mercy. But let's take a look in the Old Testament how this ultimately works. In the Old Testament, it was called the Day of Atonement. And there were sacrifices that you could offer all throughout the year for your sins. But on the one time, the, the uh, Yom Kippur uh, in Leviticus 16, you could actually, the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies, the only time he was allowed in there, and he would offer um, sacrifices unto the Lord on behalf of all the people. And I got thinking, you know, he would atone basically for the sins of the people. During the sacred occasion, the high priest symbolically would express repentance. And he would basically take off all of his official clothes. And then he would put on these white robes, indicating that he was, on behalf of Israel, repenting before God. He initiated this process by basically offering a bull calf as a sin offering for himself and the other priest. Entering the Holy of Holies with a censer of live coals from the altar of incense, the high priest would sprinkle the bullock's blood on the mercy seat on the floor of the Ark of the Covenant. Lots then were casted for two goats that this high priest had at this time. And one of the goats would be sacrificed as a sin offering for the nation, for all the people's sins that they had done during the year. Its blood would be sprinkled on the Holy of Holies. The other goat, though, the high priest would lay his hands upon that goat, confess all the sins of Israel, and then would release the goat, signifying that symbolically Israel's sins were being carried away. This intricate ritual exemplifies God's mercy. The truth is, what do we deserve? Death. We all deserve death for falling short of God's glory. That is the wages of sin death, it says in the Bible. So the truth is, is that, you know, something, someone has to die because of our sin. And in the Old Testament, it was the animals. They died and they atoned for, symbolically, our sins. Now, you know what, the truth is, is that how does God deal with us, though, in light of all the sins that we ultimately do? We transgress and we fall short of God's glory all the time. And we occur God's wrath because of that, and rightfully so, because we have fallen short of his glory. And we get if you look at the Old Testament, you'll find out that, yes, there were a lot of times that God was angry with us as humanity. If we look at the flood, God destroyed everything but Noah and his family. Why? Because every inclination of our hearts was evil. If you look at um, Sodom and Gomorrah, because they, they practice homosexuality, because of the evilness of the land, because they wanted to sleep with the angels, ultimately God smote or basically put down uh, hail and brimstone down upon Sodom and Gomorrah and destroyed everybody but Lot and his family. Lot's wife, of course, we know, turned back and, and looked at the city and ended up turning into salt, and she perished too. And then we got the ten plagues of Egypt, in which God said to Egypt, you know what? You don't love me. You don't even know me. Like, you've refused me, and you've gone off, and you basically looked at other gods, and you've been following those gods. Therefore, I'm going to give you ten plagues of Egypt as ultimate punishment. 
You know, the inevitable consequences of sin is both physical and spiritual death, according to Scripture, as articulated in Genesis 3.19 and Romans 6.23. That's what we deserve. We deserve death. But the truth is, is that we get life, and we get life through the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, here's what it says in the Bible. God the Father, what's his response to our sins? He wants us to repent. He doesn't want us to perish. He's not, you know, an angry, bitter God, as some people think, that just wants to beat on the wicked sinner. That's not the case. What he wants is for us to repent. Yes, he's angry with our sins. Yes, he has wrath towards us. But his preference is for us to get on our hands and knees and say, God, please forgive me. That's his preference. Now, the problem is, is that we were enslaved by sin. We couldn't stop sinning. We should have, but we couldn't. And as a result of that, he sent his one and only son out of mercy and grace to die for our sins so that through his death, he would atone for all of us and we would have life. The significance of Christ's sacrifice is huge. It surpasses anything ultimately that that goat did, either one of them for sure. As emphasized in Hebrews 9, 13 to 14, Jesus Christ was a once and for all sacrifice for all people. Again, the wages of sin is death. God demands death for our sin. Christ died in our place so that through his death and his resurrection, he would atone for our sins and we might have the ability to basically lead good and holy lives. Now, here's the thing. When it comes to sinning, do we as Christians have a license to sin? Because Jesus Christ died and atoned for all of our sins, does that mean we just get to live our lives the way that we want? The answer is no. We do not have a license to sin, Romans chapter number 6. Those who rejected Jesus Christ's atonement, well, they are still under the wages of sin, which is death. They're going to physically and spiritually die one day and be cast into hell. But for us who are born again, we get to live with Jesus Christ in heaven forever. But while we're living on this earth, what's the expectation? That we would be holy as God is holy. We're expected to throw off all the sin and become holy in God's sight. We're expected to live for the Lord Jesus Christ in the way that he wants. Despite our brokenness and sin, then what does God think? He loves us. He cares for us. He shows us grace. He shows us mercy. He gives us every opportunity in the world to repent and come close to him. Well, praise be to God for that. Think about it for a moment, all the times that we sin. Thank goodness there is a mechanism for us to get forgiven. Thank goodness we can be washed according to scriptures whiter than snow. Thank goodness for that, because we can't do it on our own. So Jesus Christ died for us, and that's amazing. So that's the first thing. That's the first thing that God has done for us. When he looks down upon us and sees us that we are sinning, yes, he's disappointed. And yes, he's angry with what we are doing. But at the same time, he also loves us gives us grace, and gives us the means through Jesus Christ's atonement, through confession to Jesus Christ, we can be forgiven. That's beautiful. That's the first thing. But let's look at the second type of brokenness that we all face, and that's living in a fallen world. It's not a very good world, is it? The truth is, even the Bible talks about this and says that this world is decaying. It's in the process of falling apart. And because of our sin, the whole world is groaning, it says in scriptures. And there's a whole bunch of bad things that happen to both good and bad people because of sin and the way it's disrupted God's beautiful thing called creation. To truly know God, how he responds to our tribulations happening to us in the fallen world, let's go through a story. What does God think that when we're going through difficult times? Does he care? Does he look upon us? 
Does he shed a tear? Does he even notice us? Does he want us to have a good and fulfilling life? How does he respond to us crying out, Abba, Father, I just can't take the suffering and pain anymore. What does he think? And what does he say to us? And how does he feel about our circumstances? Let's look at the story of Lazarus. Nothing causes us more anguish than death. When somebody is about to die, that's a lot of anguish, isn't it? If you've gone through it, and I know probably everybody listening here probably has, it's not easy. And especially when we know in advance that it is coming. I don't know which is worse. Somebody dies all of a sudden and you never knew anything about it and all of a sudden they're gone. Or knowing in advance that they're about to die and you've got to wait and go through that. And every day you're hoping to stay alive and they're going through suffering and pain. I'm not sure which one's worse. Either one is very difficult to deal with. Death is not easy for any of us to deal with. In the Gospel of John, we're told about a man who names Lazarus. He becomes deathly ill. And he's not going to recover from it. And he knows that. And his two sisters, Mary and Martha, sit back and look at him and go, Oh my goodness, Lazarus is about to die. Now, now they all know Jesus. They're all friends of Jesus. Very good friends of Jesus, actually. And they sit back and they say, You know what? we got to do something about this. So they sent a servant. And they said, to the servant, you go talk to Jesus. We know him, and we know he performs miracles, and we know that he can heal the sick, and we know that he can heal Lazarus, our brother, very quickly. So go get him very quick so that he doesn't die and so that he might be healed. And you can almost imagine the desperation that they had. So the sister said, you sent word, servant. You go and you tell Jesus, the one that you love, the one that is your friend, the one that you know so very well is sick. Please come and heal him. And that was the message. This absolutely terrifying news, what would Jesus say to it? He sat back and he told them, you know what? This will not result, this sickness will not result in death at all. And he stayed there for two additional days. The servant was very clear. Mary and Martha are looking at Lazarus, who's on his deathbed. You need to come now before he dies. And Jesus stays there for two more days before he tells his disciples, oh, by the way, we got to go back to Judea. Now is the right time. Lazarus has fallen asleep, Jesus tells his disciples. Now is the time for the glory of God to shine very brightly. We're going to go back and we're going to go visit Mary, Martha, and ultimately Lazarus. And can you imagine? Oh my goodness, when it says in the Bible, he fell asleep, that means he's dead. He had died. And they're sitting back saying, oh, you should have come earlier. And this is what the two ladies were, were sitting back saying, you should have come earlier. He's been dead for four days now. He's already dead. What are you going to do now about it, Jesus? Despite the numerous individuals that came to console Mary and Martha, they were absolutely perplexed. They were sad. They had wished that Jesus had put more urgency in their needs, and he, they wished he would have come much quicker. Martha expressed her profound disappointment because when she knew that Jesus was coming, she ran out to meet him, and, and Mary stepped behind. And Martha gets up to Jesus and says, Oh, by the way, you know what? He has died. If you had been here earlier, he wouldn't have died. She was very clear with Jesus. I'm disappointed in what you allowed to happen. I wish you would have put more urgency on it. Even some of the Jews that were standing around questioned it and said, you know what, he opened the eyes of the blind. And they could probably cite all sorts of miracles that Christ had actually done. They'd probably seen them. Some of them maybe even experienced those miracles. And they said, you know what, he let Lazarus die. He didn't have to. He could have easily cured Lazarus if only he had made it in time. In response to Mars's lament, Jesus didn't merely offer comforting words, but made this promise. 
Your brother's going to rise again. For I am the resurrection and life. And this is the reason why Jesus took his time. He told the disciples, I'm not going to go right yet. I'm going to wait two more days because it is God's plan that Lazarus is going to die. And then I'm going to bring him back to life to show you and Mary and Martha and even Lazarus that I am the ruler of death. I have sovereign control over all things seen and unseen. Nothing, not even including death, has mastery over me or any of my children. This is the lesson he wanted to show them. The story concludes that Jesus gets there. And, you know, it says in the Bible, the shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. Jesus is emotionally affected by his friend dying. And, of course, Mary and Martha, who are friends too as well. And they're crying and they're weeping and they're very sad. Just like we are when we lose somebody. And then Jesus goes and yells out, Lazarus, come forth. Come out of that grave. And he comes alive again gets alive and he comes out of the grave and you could almost imagine their astonishment but the importance here is that Jesus cares very much for each and every one of us but it makes us wonder when we turn on our television set we see countless people suffering in great pain and agony from wars earthquakes diseases financial crises and marital problems you know what fear grips into our souls and you know what? It tears away any sense of peace when we see that other people are experiencing these terrible things, and when we experience them even more so. And we wonder to ourselves, faced with such brokenness or possibility of being broken, we often cry out to God, and we say, would you not encircle me with your wonderful and beautiful hands? Would you not evoke Psalms 91.4? Would you not be my shelter? Would you not allow me not to experience any brokenness in this fallen world at all? Would you not make me pristine? Would you not give me that silver spoon, so to speak, and make it so I never have to go through anything difficult? This is what we're hoping that he will give us. We know that chance happens to everyone, Ecclesiastes 9, 11 to 12. But we hope that if we pray hard enough and long enough, Christ will say, okay, you're the exception. You don't have to go through any difficulties. So we pray for prevention from the Lord. We all do this. And there's nothing wrong with that, ultimately, because here's the thing. Do I pray for redemption? Do I pray that God will redeem me through my circumstances? Or do I pray that he will exclude me from bad circumstances? Which is better? Well, they're actually both good, but ultimately, we've got to see how they are good. Does not perseverance during painful storms increase our faith? You see, when we go through difficult times, it actually is for our benefit. It doesn't feel like it at the time, not even close. We'd rather have God say, oh, by the way, you don't have to go through that hardship. Many times, I am sure in our lives, God actually says that. And there are many times when we pray, he says, yes, I will grant your prayer. And oh, by the way, you're not going to have to go through this sickness or this disease, or you're not going to have to go through financial problems or some of the things the world is going through. And many times we don't have to because God gives us a miracle and we get exempted from that circumstance. That happens an awful lot, probably more than we actually realize. But there's other times when we go through difficult times, we cry out, why? Why me? Why do I have to go through it? Why am I got to go through these difficult, bitter times? Lord, surely you can easily take this away from me. So why don't you? And one of the reasons is faith. Faith. We've got to believe that God can do absolutely anything. And when the Lord carries us and gives us unspeakable joy, we've got to see that as a tremendous opportunity to witness to the world. You see, I can get up on the pulpit and I can say many words, and I often do. 
But the truth is, no sermon can match somebody who's going through difficult times, especially disease, things that are ravaging the body, making life very difficult and unpleasant. Nothing beats when they feel unspeakable joy and tell the world, I love my Lord despite my circumstances. That's a testimony I can't give from the pulpit. I just can't unless I'm going through those circumstances myself, and I have many, many times in my life. The truth is, is that when the terror of the night comes and the Christian stands up only because the Lord is picking them up and he says, oh, by the way, or she, I love Jesus. Blessed be he who gives and takes away, according to Job. When we can say that, that testimony is shocking to this world and incredibly profound. And even if our tribulations might, might last for many years, and they often do, I got thinking, death will not triumph over us. Death has no mastery over us as a Christian. Death has no sting whatsoever. For if we should die, where do we go? Heaven, to be with the Lord forever. To be up there where there's no more sorrow, no more pain, no more anguish, no more difficulties. We get to go to be with Jesus forever. Amen. That's awesome. We've got to hang on that. We've got to keep our eyes fixed on the Lord Jesus Christ and where we are going. Because that helps us through an awful lot of trials and tribulations. And in our storms, as grievous as they might be, Paul comes along and he says, Oh, by the way, don't worry. They're momentary. And once they pass and once you get into heaven, you're going to forget all about them. And you're going to focus on the Lord. And you're going to be in his presence. And you're going to be singing praises to him for the rest of your life. Amen. God loves us so very, very much. And he notices us. I want to finish with this. There's an old Japanese art of mending broken pottery. So if you had a bowl like this and it smashed in a lot of pieces, as you can see, this bowl was in a lot of pieces at one time. What they do is they would take a lacquer mixed with powdered gold or silver or platinum, whatever they had at the time, and they would basically join the pieces back together again, and you could see all these different lines in it. And, of course, it was considered art at that particular point. In the end, the Japanese found that these bowls that were constructed in this manner, or I should say reconstructed, were far more valuable than the bowl that was never broken in the first place. The same is true in our lives. We are far more valuable to this world as a witness when we are broken and God restores us. The more times that we go through difficulties, James says, and persevere and have faith in the Lord, the more our spiritual growth happens. The more we get closer to the Lord, the more we become like him, the more we rely on him, and the more the world sees our response to circumstances and says, wow, you have something I don't have. You have God. And they start looking towards God. You know, the truth is, is those who are created in God's image, you know, God can create us again. He can recreate us. He can take the broken piece of our hearts, even in the most difficult of storms, and put them back together exactly where they belong. He's released us from sin so that we might serve him and we might joyfully bow before him despite what we go through. When we surrender our fear and our desire to control the unknown future to the God of Israel, the known God of Israel, not even the prince of this world, Satan, can shake our faith and trust in he who created all things seen and unseen. There will certainly be days that seem like there's very little hope and the pain will be so intense that it threatens to swallow us up into the grave. You know those storms that are so fierce that all you could do is cry out, Abba, Father. 
And yet, despite our wavering faith from time to time, and despite the sin that we ultimately have, and we all do sin, here's the thing. We learn that that this beautiful Japanese art of putting a bowl back together, for us, the believer, it's God taking the broken pieces and fixing them always and constantly and putting us back together again. And by his grace, through compassion, we ultimately become holy and like him. Our brokenness, I think, is something infinitely more valuable to us when we are restored than anything else we could experience in our life. If you pray the prayer, and I've done this, and I soon found out what the results were, but if you've had a prayer and you said, Lord, I want to be stronger in the faith. I want to know you more. I want to grow. I want to become mature. I want to make a significant impact upon this world. Lord, this is my heart's desire. If you pray that prayer, hang on. Brace yourself. Because what comes next? Most times it's trials and tribulations. You know what? We are refined best in the fire of circumstances of our lives. And the truth is, is the more we go through difficulties and the more we rely on the Lord, the stronger we get. Why? Because in our weakness, Christ makes us strong. And it's by our faith in Christ who could do anything and everything that we actually learn that and we come to realize it is certainly true. We've been adopted into God's family. We get to live with him for absolutely forever. And yes, brokenness is not a whole lot of fun. I'll I'll agree with that. And I've gone through it. But the truth is, is that God still loves us. And when he sees us broken, he shows us grace. He shows us mercy when it's our fault. And when it's not our fault, he lifts us up. And he says, you know what? I'll put my arms around you and I will show you my love. I will show you that even in your brokenness, you can stand firm in the faith. You can keep your eyes fixed on my son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and you can become more like him and follow in his footsteps if you choose to do so. And if you do, You'll be a light under the nations that will shine very brightly, not just now, but forevermore. Is this what you want for your life? God loves you so very much. And no matter how difficult your circumstances are, God loves you with all of his heart. And he certainly, he looks upon us and he says, you know what? I will always, in your circumstances, I'll work through them with you for your good in the end. Do you believe that? Romans 8, 28. I certainly do. And I can tell you, and a lot of people in all the circumstances of my life, some of them fairly bleak, a lot of people come to know the Lord, come to know that I actually love the Lord. And then they asked why. What a beautiful testimony I was able to give them. I hope and pray your life is the same way. So if you're going through difficult times, realize God loves you. And he wants to hold on to you, and he will help you persevere through those difficult times. And just like this broken vase, you'll become far more valuable as a testimony to this world if you you persevere in the faith. And I hope and pray you do. May God bless you today. Amen.